Hello, and welcome to Infinite Cast, a podcast. Um, we have here our first ever guest. Uh, say hello, Matt. Hello. Hello, um, Matt. It's, it's Chapo Trap Houses and Hell of Presidents and Cush Blog Zone, Matt Grisman, here to read Infinite Jest with us, here to get, uh, you know, uh, uh, nice and canceled doing the bad man book. On the, it's toxic. The, uh, I, I did, like, a full stack of HGH and, and horse <laughs> steroids. Uh, I've been pumping iron all week and, and slamming beers with my bros <laughs> just to get my T levels up mm-hmm. so sufficiently to deal with the the bro nepro- necronomicon <laughs> infinite, infinite chest it's, uh, very, it's very toxic it's very male manipulator yes uh, it's so it's so wrong and yet here we are uh, but as always let's just hop right into the text we'll do our, our talking later we'll both discuss eschaton and, gen- and Specifically, but also we'll get Matt's takes on uh, Infinite Jest as a whole Yes. Uh, at the end. So, diving right in. Eschaton. <laughs> I have, a, I have a, a dog sitting next to me, and I wonder if my purse has been mistaken for another animal. It's furry and has print on it. <laughs> and that's cool. Um, yeah, let's do it. Where are we? Uh, okay. What often takes the longest to get a quorum on is each game's triggering situation. Here, Lord, like many stellar statistics wonks, shows a bit of an Achilles heel imagination-wise, but he's got a good five or six years of eschaton precedence to draw on. A Russo-Chinese border dispute goes tactical over Xinjiang. An Amnat compute, compute tracker in the Aleutians misreads a flight of geese as three Sovwar SS-10s on re-entry. Israel moves armored divisions north and east through Jordan after an El Al Airbus is bombed in mid-flight by a cell linked to both Husseins. Black <laughs> Albertan wackos infiltrate an isolated silo at Fort Chimo and get two MIRVs through South Af's defense net. North Korea invades South Korea, vice versa. Amnat is within 72 hours of putting an unimpregnable string of anti-missile satellites online and the remorseless logic of game theory compels Sovwar to go sack pop while it still has the chance. On Interdependence Day, Sunday, 11-8, Game Master Lord's triggering situation unwinds nicely on Pemulus's view. Explosions of suspicious origin occur at Amnat satellite receiver stations from Turkey to Labrador as three high-level Canadian defense ministers vanish, and then a couple of days later are photographed at a Volgograd bistro hoisting shots of Stolichnaya with Slavic bimbos on their knee. <laughs> this takes us to end note 126. Uh, it being well nigh impossible to keep the present from infecting even a playful and childlike historical consciousness, Canadians often end up playing picayune but <laughs> villainous roles <laughs> in eschatonic trig sits. Back to the text. Then two Sovwar trawlers just inside international waters off Washington are strafed by F-16s on patrol out of Cape Flattery Naval Base. Both Amnat and Sovwar go from DEFCON 2 to DEFCON 4. Red Chai goes to DEFCON 3 in response to which Sovwar airfields and anti-missile networks from Irkutsk to the Jugzjur range go to DEFCON 5 in response to which Amnat SAC bombers and anti-missile missile silos in Nebraska and South Dakota and Saskatchewan and eastern Spain assume a maximum readiness posture. Sovwar's bald and port wine-stained premier uh, calls Amnat's wattle-chinned, which takes us to end note 127, a lot of these little toss-ins and embellishments are Ink amusing himself, not Otis's Trigsit, which is 100% all biz. <laughs> Back to the text. Waddle Chin President on the hotline and ask him if he's got Prince Albert in a can. 
Another pretty shady explosion levels a Sovor big ear monitoring station on Sakhalin. General Atomic Inc.'s gaseous diffusion uranium enrichment facility in Portsmouth, Ohio, reports four kilograms of enriched uranium hexafluoride missing and then suffers a cataclysmic fire that forces evacuation of six downwind counties. An Amnat minesweeper of the 6th Fleet on maneuvers in the Red Sea is hit and sunk with Red Chai's silkworm torpedoes fired by Libsier uh, MIG-25s. Italy, in an apparently uh, bizarre NSTAT-generated development Otis P. Lord will only smile enigmatically about, invades Albania. <laughs> <laughs> Sovwar goes apeshit. Apoplectic premier rings Amnat's president only to be asked if his refrigerator is running. This seems like a bit more of a uh, complicated triggering event than North Korea invades South Korea. Yeah, right. Uh, Libsyr shocks the Christian world by airbursting a half-megaton device two clicks over Tel Aviv, causing deaths in the low six figures. Everybody and his brother goes to DEFCON 5. Air Force One leaves the ground. South Af and Red Chai announce neutrality and plead for cool heads. Israeli armored columns uh, behind heavy tactical artillery saturation push into Syria all the way to Abu Kanal in 12 hours. Damascus has firestorms. And Nebk is reportedly just plain gone. Several repressive right-wing regimes in the third world suffer coup d'etats and are replaced by repressive left-wing regimes. Tehran and Baghdad announce full dip-mill support of Libsyr, thus reconstituting Libsyr as Ir-Libsyr. Amnet and Sovwar activate all de civil defense personnel and armed force reserves and commence evacuation of selected mamas. Irlibsir is today represented by Evan Ingersoll, whom Axford keeps growling at under his breath. How can hear? I don't know if you remember, but Ingersoll is the little buddy that no one likes. Oh, yeah. Everyone just hates him. <laughs> A shifty-eyed member of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff vanishes and isn't photographed anywhere. Albania sues for terms. Crude and apparently amateur devices in the low kiloton range explode across Israel from Haifa to Ascalon. Tripoli is incommunicado after at least four thermonuclear explosions uh, cause second-degree burns as far away as Medinin, Tunisia. A 10-kiloton tactical artillery device airbursts over the command center of the Czech Third Army in Ostrava, record resulting in what one Pentagon analyst calls a serious weenie roast. Despite the fact that nobody but Sovwar itself has anybody close enough to hit Ostrava from howitzer distance, Sovwar Sov stonewalls Amnat's denials and regrets. Amnat's president tries ringing Sovwar's premier from the air and gets only the premier's answering machine. Amnat is unable to determine whether the string of explosions at its radar installations all along the Arctic Circle are conventional or tactical. CIA slash NSA reports that 64% of the civilian populations of Sovwar's mamas have been successfully relocated below ground in hardened shelters. Amnet evacu orders evacuation of all mamas. Uh, Sovwar MIG-25. Oh, mamas is the metropolitan areas, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, great. Yes, with like mamas. civilians in them. Mm -hmm. uh, Sovwar MIG-25s engage Red Chai aircraft overseas off Tianjin. Air Force Two tries to leave the ground and gets a flat tire. A single <laughs> one megaton SS-10 evades anti-missile missiles and detonates just over Provo, Utah, from which all communications abruptly cease. Eschaton's game master now posits, but does not go so far as to actually assert, that NSTAT's game-theoretic decision tree now dictates a SpaceX response from Amnat. 
uninitiated adults who might be parked in a nearby mint green advertorial Ford sedan or might stroll casually past ETA's four easternmost tennis courts and see an atavistic global nuclear conflict game played by tanned and energetic little kids. <laughs> and so this might naturally expect to see fuzzless green warheads getting whacked indiscriminately skyward all over the place as everybody gets blackly drunk with thanatoptic fury in the crisp <laughs> November air. These adults would find more likely find an actual game of eschaton strangely subdued, almost narcotized looking. Your standard round of eschaton moves at about the pace of chess between adepts. For these devotees become, on court, almost parodically adult, staid, sober, humane, and judicious 12-year-old world leaders, trying their best to not to let the awesome weight of their responsibilities, responsibilities to nation, globe, rationality, ideology, conscience, and, conscience and history, to both the living and the unborn, not to let the terrible agony they feel at the arrival of this day, this dark day, the leaders of prayed would never come and have taken every conceivable measure rationally consistent with national strategic interest to avoid, to prevent, not to let the agonizing weight of responsibility compromise their resolve to do what they must to preserve their people's way of life. So they play logically, cautiously, so earnest and deliberate in their calculations, they appear thoroughly and queerly adult, almost Talmudic, from a distance. A couple gulls fly overhead. A mint green Ford sedan has passed through the gate's raised portcullis and is trying to parallel park between two dumpsters in the circular drive behind West House, which is behind and to the next draining left of the Gatorade Pavilion. There's an autumnal tang to the air and a brittle gray shell of cloud cover, plus the constant faraway hum of Sunstrand Plaza's Ask Me fan line. Strategic acumen and feel for realism vary from kid to kid, of course. When earlib seer's Evan Ingersoll starts lobbing warheads at Sovor's belt of third-wave third reserve silos in the Kazakh, and it becomes pretty clear that Amnet has won earlib seer to its side by making sinister promises about the ultimate disposition of Israel, Israel, even though nobody's Israel out there today, seems in a fit of pique to have somehow persuaded South Af, who today is Brooklyn, New York's little hard-ass Josh Gopnik, the same Josh Gopnik who, by the way, subscribes to commentary, to expend all 16 of its green fuzzy warheads in a debilitating enfilade against Amnat dams, bridges, and bases from Florida to Baja. Everybody involved orders total displacement of mama populations. Then, without any calculation whatever, INPAC, who today is J.J. Penn, a high-ranked 13-year-old but not exactly the brightest log on the Yuletide fire, dumps three poorly tied jockstraps worth of MIRVs on Israel, landing most of the megatonnage in sub-Beersheba desert areas that didn't look much different before the blasts. <laughs> when Randley commits from the shelter of the Gatorade Pavilion under Stitz Tower by Trolch, Axford, and Incondenza, Penn shrilly reminds them that Pakistan is a Muslim state and sworn foe to all infidelic enemies of Islam, but can do little but fiddle with the strings of his launcher when Pemulus cheerfully reminds him that nobody's Israel today and there isn't so much as a combatant sock on that part of the courts. It is not a matter of the principle of thing ever in eschaton. Except for the South Af flurry and impact boner, 11-8's game proceeds with much probity and cold deliberation, with even more pauses and hushed chin-stroking conferences today than tend to be the norm. The only harried-looking person on the 1,300 millimeter, uh, meter squared map 
is Otis P. Lord, who has to keep legging it from one continent to another, pushing a rolling double-shelf stainless steel food cart purloined from St. John of God Hospital with a blinking you-shit-you portable on one shelf and a 256-capacity diskette case about two-thirds full on the other, the shelves' sides hung with clattering clipboards, Lord having to dramatize manually the effortless dictates of real logic and necessity, verifying that command decisions are allowable functions of situation and capacity. He'd shrugged his shoulders in a is neutral... It, is this the, yes. like, portable screen that's coming computer, from the mainframe in the... Uh, yeah, that's, like, running the program that calculates all this stuff. Which would, in, now, if you needed it, could be your phone. Your phone, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, he'd shrugged his shoulders in a neutral whatever at South <laughs> Athen Impact, locating necessary data for subterranean premiers and dictators and airsick presidents... <laughs> removing vaporized articles of clothing from sites of devastating hits and just wopsing them up or folding them over at the sites of near hits and fizzle yields, triangulating EM pulse estimates from confirmed hits to authorize or deny communication capacity. It's a nerve-wracking job. He's more or less having to play God, tallying kill ratios and radiation levels and perimeters of fallout, strontium-90 and iodine levels and the likelihood of conflagrations versus firestorms in mamas with different mean value skyscraper heights and combustible capital uh, indices. Despite chapped hands and a badly running nose, Lord's response time to requests for data is impressive, thanks mainly to the sly DEC hookup and the detailed decision algorithm files Pemulus had authored three years back. Otis P. Lord informs Sovwar and Amnat that Peoria, Illinois' topographic flatness ups the effective kill radius for Sovor's 5 megaton direct hit to 10.1 clicks, meaning half of this mama pop burns to death in evacuatory traffic jams out on Interstate <laughs> 74. An Amnat Minuteman can hold an absolute maximum of eight MIRVs, irregardless, <laughs> irregardless of whether the Titanic jockstrap little Lamont Chu promoted out of the sedated Teddy Shack's gear bag on the bus Friday night can hold 13 dead tennis balls. Given standard climatic conditions, climatic conditions, the fire area from an airburst will be two pi times larger than the blast area. Toronto has enough subcode skyscrapers within its total area to guarantee a firestorm off a minimum of two strikes within two pi over one uh, over total Toronto area in meters squared of target center. Five megatons of heavy hydrogen fusion yields at least uh, 1,400,000 curies worth of strontium-90 meaning microcephalic kids in Montreal for roughly 22 generations. And yes, Wiseacre McKenna of Amnat, the world will probably notice the difference. <laughs> Struck and Trevor Axford hoot loudly from under the green Gatorade Thirst Aid awning of the open-air pavilion outside the fence along the south side of the East Courts, where the pavilion... They and Michael Pemulus Again, and Jim. This is, this is making me thirsty for ice cold water. Oh, for water. a nice ice cold Gatorade? Water. No, ice cold water out of a big Gatorade bottle. Oh, oh like so jug good. on the tennis court. That classic Gatorade jug. Out of a paper cone. Mm -hmm. uh, they and Michael Pemulus and Jim Trolch and Hal and Condensa are splayed on reticulate mesh patio chairs in street clothes and with their street sneakers up on reticulate mesh footstools. Struck in Axford with suspiciously bracing Gatorades and what looks like a hand-rolled psychochemical cigarette of some kind uh, being passed between them. 11-8 is an ETA day of mandatory total R&R, &R, though the public intoxicants are a bit much. Pemulus has a bag of red-skinned peanuts he hasn't eaten much of. Trevor Axford has over-inhaled from the cigarette and is hunched, coughing, his forehead purple. Hal and Condenza is squeezing a tennis ball and leaning out far to starboard to spit into a NASA glass on the ground, 
and struggling with a strong desire to get high again for the second time since breakfast versus a strong distaste about smoking dope with slash in front of all these others, especially out in the open in front of little buddies, which seems to him to violate some sort of issue of taste that he struggles to articulate satisfactorily to himself. A tooth way back on the upper left is twinging, twinging uh, artificially, uh, electrically in the cold air. Pemulus, though from his twitchy right eye, he's clearly had recent recourse to some tenuate, which helps explain the uneaten nuts, is currently <laughs> abstaining and sitting on his hands for warmth. Peanuts on the floor well away from Hal's NASA glass. The pavilion is open on all sides and compliments of Stokely Van Camp Corp and little more than like a big fancy tent with a green felt cover over the expanse's real grass and white iron patio furniture with reticulate plastic mesh. It's mostly used for civilians' spectation during exhibition matches on the East Show Court 789. Sometimes ETAs cluster under it during drill breaks in the summer in the heat of the day. The green awning gets taken down when they go into the lung for the winter. Eschaton traditionally com commandeers courts six through nine, the really nice east courts, unless there's legit tennis going on. All the upper-class spectators, except Jim Strzok, are former Eschaton devotees, though Hal and Trolch were both marginal. Trolch, who's also pretty clearly had some tenuate, is left-eye nystagmic and is calling the action into a disconnected broadcast <laughs> headset, but Eschaton's tough to enliven verbally, even for the stimulated, being generally too slow and cerebral. Strzok is telling Axford to put his hands over his head, and Pemulus is telling Axford to hold his breath. Now, in a stress-heightened voice, Otis P. Lord says he needs Pemulus to real quick come and zip inside through the cyclone fence gate south of Court 12 and walk across the theater's four-court map to show Lord how to access the NSTAT calculation that every thousand Rontgens of straight X and gamma produces 6.36 deaths per 100 uh, POP, and for the other, 93.64 means reduced lifespans of, uh, this is a calculation, parentheses, total R uh, minus 100 times, in parentheses, 0.0636, in parentheses, total R subtract 100 squared, close parentheses, years, meaning nobody's exactly going to have to be pricing dentures and minks, so to speak, in the future, and so on. After about half the planet's extant megatonnage has been expended, things are looking pretty good for the Amnat crew. Even though they and Sovor are SpaceXing back and forth with chilling accuracy, Sovor's designated launcher is the butch and suspiciously muscular Ann Kitten plan, who, at 12 and a half, <laughs> looks like a Belarusian shot putter and has to buy urine more than a quarter annually and has a way more lush and impressive mustache than, for instance, Hal himself could raise and who gets these terrible rages. But so Kitten Plans landed nothing worse than an indirect hit all afternoon while Amnat's launchman is t Todd Postalweight Postlethwaite, an endomorphic 13-year-old from Edina, Minnesota, whose whole infuriating tennis game consists of nothing but kick serves and topspin lobs and who's been the Eschaton MVL, which takes us to end note 128, most valuable lobber. <laughs> Back to the text. For the last two years, and accuracy-wise has to be seen to be believed, still both sides have artfully avoided the escalation to sack pop that often takes both super combatants right out of the game. And Amnet's president, Lamont Chu, has used the excuse of Gopnik's emotional strikes against the U.S. South, plus Penn's irrational lobbing at an Israel that at the summit was explicitly placed under Amnat's mutual defense umbrella, has used these as golden tactical geese, racking up serious in-deer points against a South Af and Inpac whose uh, hasty defensive alliance 
and shaky aim produced nothing more than a lot of irradiated cod off Gloucester. <laughs> Uh, whenever there's a direct hit, Troll shits up straight and gets to use the exclamation he's hit on for a kind of announced serial trademark. Holy crow! <laughs> but so far, beset from two vectors by Amnat and Earlib Seer, whose occasional lob Israel's way, Amnat, drawing a storm of diplomatic protest from South Athen Impact, keeps instructing Lord to log as regrettable mistargetings. Even with cutting-edge civil defense and EMP-resistant communications, Poor old Sovor is absorbing such serious collateral souftier that it's being uh, Im- inexorably impelled by game-theoretic logic to a position where it's going to pretty much have no choice but to go sack pop against Amnat. <laughs> now Sovor Premier Timmy, Sleepy TP, Peterson, petitions OP Lord for capacity slash authorization to place a scrambled call to Air Force One. Scrambled call means they don't yell at each other publicly across the court's map, Lord has to ferry messages from one side to the other, complete with inclined heads and hushed tones, etc. Premier and President exchange standard formalities. Premier apologizes for the Prince Albert crack. Hal, who's declining all public chemicals, he's decided, has a gander at Pemulus's rough tallies of combatants in deer slash deer ratios so far, and agrees to bet Axford a U.S. Finsky no way Amnet accepts Sovor's invitation to possible terms. During actionist Actionless diplomatic intervals like this, Trolch is reduced to saying, what a beautiful day for an eschaton, over and over, <laughs> and asking people for their thoughts on the game until Pemulus tells him he's cruising to get dope slapped. There's pretty much nobody around. Tavis and Stitt are off giving what are essentially recruiting talks at indoor clubs in the west suburbs. Pemulus had let tall Paul Shaw take the multi-emblazoned tow truck to take Mario down to the public gardens to watch the public eye day festivities with the Bolex H64. The local kids often go home for the day. A lot of the rest like to lie in the viewing rooms, barely moving at all. Uh, mo- barely moving all eye day until the dinner gala. Lord terraces back and forth between court six and eight, food cart clattering. The food cart, which Pemulus and Axford picked up from a kind of seedy-looking orderly at SJOG Hospital that Pemulus knew from Alston, has one of those crazy left front wheels that EG seems always to afflict only your particular grocery cart in supermarkets and makes a hell of a (laughs) clattering racket when rushed. Faring messages, which the 18 and under guys can tell Amnat and Sovor are making deliberately oblique and obtuse, so Lord has to do that much more running, God is never a particularly popular role to have to play, and Lord this fall has already been the victim of several boarding school-type pranks too puerile to even detail. J.A.L. Struck Jr., who as usual has made a swine of himself with the suspiciously bracing cups of Gatorade, is abruptly ill all over his own lap and then sort of slumps to one side in his patio chair with his face slack and white and doesn't hear Pemulus's quick analysis that Hal might as well give Axe Handle the money right now because Lamont Chu can parse the decision tree with the best of them, and the D-tree is now indicating peace terms in whatever a D-tree's version of neon letters is, because the biggest priority for Amnat, right at 15-15 hours, is to avoid having to, to sack pop with Sovor, since if the game stops right now, Amnat's probably won, whereas if they sack pop with Sovor, trading massive infliction of Indir for massive body shots of Sufdir, staying more or less even with each other, Amnat will still be the same number of points ahead of Sovor overall, but it'll have taken such heavy Sufdir debits that Earlibs here, never forget Earlibs here, brilliantly if obnoxiously imamed today by 11-year-old eyebrowless Evan Ingersoll of Binghamton, New New York, by staying out of the sack pop fest and lobbing sporadically at Sovor just often enough 
to rack up serious endear, but not quite enough to piss Sovor off enough to provoke the retaliatory SS-10 wave that would mean significant Sufdir. Could well have a serious shot at overtaking Amnat for the overall eschaton, especially when you factored in the FX advantages for bellicosity and non-existent civil defense. At some point, Axford has passed the remainder of the cigarette back over towards Struck without looking to see that Struck is no longer in his chair, and Hal finds himself taking the proffered Dubois and smoking dope in public without even thinking about it or having consciously decided to go ahead. Sure enough, poor red-faced runny-nosed lord is making way too many clattering trips between courts six and eight for it to mean anything but peace terms. Evan Ingersoll is possibly, positively strip-mining his right nostril. <laughs> Finally, Lord stops with the running back and forth and positions himself in the ad service box of Court 7 and loads a new diskette into the you shit you. Struck moans something in a possibly foreign tongue. All the other upper-class spectators have scooted their chairs well away from Struck. Trolch extends a blood-blistered palm and rubs the tip of the hand's fingers together at Hal, and Hal forks over the fin without handing the thin cigarette back over to Axford somehow. Pemulus has leaned forward intently with his pointy chin in his hands. He seems completely absorbed. Interdependence Day, YDAU's Eschaton enters probably its most crucial phase. Lord, at his cart and portable TP, puts on the white beanie, NB, not the black or the red beanie, that signals a temporary cessation of SpaceX between two combatants, but allows all other combatants to go on pursuing their strategic interests as they see fit. Sovor and Amnet are thus pretty vulnerable right now. Sovor's Premier Peterson and Air Marshal Kittenplan, carrying their white janitorial stockpile bucket between them, walk across Europe and the Atlantic to parlay with Amnat President Chu and Supreme Commander Postlethwaite in what looks to be roughly Sierra Leone. <laughs> roughly, uh, or vari various territories smolder quietly. The other players are mostly standing around, beating their arms against their chests to stay warm. A few hesitant white flakes appear and swirl around and melt into dark stars the moment they hit court. A couple of ostensible world leaders run here and there in a rather unstatesmanlike fashion with their open mouths directed at the sky, <laughs> trying to catch bits of the fall's first snow. Yesterday, it had been warmer and rained. Axford speculates about whether snow will mean Schtitt might consent to inflate the lung even before the fundraiser two weeks hence. Struck is threatening to fall out of his chair. Pemulus, leaning forward intently, wearing his Mr. Howell yachting cap, ignores everyone. He hates to type and keep his tallies via pencil and clipboard a la DeLint. The idling Ford sedan is conspicuous for the excruciated full-color old Nunhagen, Nunhagen aspirin ad on the green of its right rear door. Hal and Axford are passing what looks to the combatants like a suckerless Tootsie Roll stick back and forth between them and occasionally to Trolch. Trevor, the axe handle Axford, has a total of only three and a half digits on his right hand. From West House, you can hear Mrs. Clark and the time-and-a-half holiday kitchen staff preparing the Interdependence Day gala dinner, which always includes dessert. Now Redshy, itself quietly trying to rack up some unanswered Indier, sends a towering topspin lob into Impact's quadrant, scoring what Redshy claims is a direct hit on Karachi and what Warheadless Impact claims is only an indirect hit on Karachi. It's an uneasy moment. A dispute such as this would never occur in the real God's real world, since the truth would be manifest in the actual size of the actual weenie roast in the actual Karachi. But God here is played by Otis P. Lord, and Lord is number crunching so fiendishly at the cards you shit you, trying to confirm the verisimilitude of the peace terms Amnet and Sovor are hashing out, that he can't even pretend to have seen where Red Shy's strike against Impact landed with respect to Karachi's t-shirt, which is admittedly kind of mashed and wopsed up, though this could primarily be from breezes and feet. 
and in his lapse of omniscience cannot see how he's supposed to allocate the relevant Indir and Suftir points. Trolch doesn't know whether to say holy crow or not. <laughs> Lord, vexed by a lapse, it's tough to see how any mortal could have avoided, appeals over to Michael Pemulus for an independent ruling, and when Pemulus gravely shakes his white-hatted head, pointing out that Lord is God and either sees or doesn't in Eschaton, Lord has an intense little crying fit that's made abruptly worse when now J.J. Penn of Impact all of a sudden gets the idea to start claiming now that it's snowing, uh, that now that it's snowing, the snow totally affects blast area and fire area and pulse intensity and maybe also has followed implications. And he says Lord has to now completely redo everyone's damage parameters before anybody can form realistic strategies from here on out. Pimulus's chair legs shriek and make red skin peanuts spill out in a kind of cornucopic cone shape and he's up in his capacity as sort of eminence grease of Eschaton and ranging up and down just outside the theater's chain link fencing, giving J.J. Penn the very roughest imaginable side of his tongue. Besides being real sensitive to any theater boundary puncturing threats to the map's integrity, threats that have come up before and that, as Pemulus sees it, threaten the game's whole sense of animating realism, which realism depends on buying the artifice of 1,300 meters square of composition tennis court representing the whole rectangular projection of the planet Earth, Pemulus is also a sworn foe of all pens for all time. It had been J.J. Penn's much older brother, Miles Penn, now 21 and flailing away on the grim third world satellite pro tour, playing for <laughs> travel expenses in bleak dysenteric locales, who, when Pemulus first arrived at ETA at age 11, had christened him Michael Penisless and had, <laughs> and had had Pemulus convinced for almost a year that if he pressed on his belly button, his ass would fall off. <laughs> Which takes us to EndNote 129. M. Pemulus is, in the best Alston, Massachusetts tradition, a good friend and a bad news enemy. And even ETAs who don't like him are careful not to do or even say anything that might call for a score settling because Pemulus is a thoroughgoing, chilled revenge gourmet and is not one bit above dosing someone's water jug or voltaging their doorknob or encoding something horrid in your ETA med files or dickying with a mirror over the bureau in the little recessed part of your subdorm room that when you look in the mirror in the AM to comb or tend to a blackhead or something, you see something staring back at you that you'll never entirely get over, which is what took over two years to finally happen to M.H. Penn, who afterward wouldn't sh see what, say what he'd seen, but stopped shaving altogether, and it's agreed has never been quite himself since. Do you want to call that there? That's 30 minutes of reading. Uh, I just, I want to see if there's a, yeah, let's, let's call it, unless... We'll, we'll, do, the re we'll do the reading quick, or... A Quiz? Little, yeah, we'll do the reading, reading uh, quicker today so we can just get to the discussion. Okay. Uh, so that's the game. That's the majority of a game of Eschaton. Uh, well, it gets a little wild after that. It gets it a little spoiler crazy alert. after that. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know. You guys uh, do, do know. I, obviously, we're not going to get through, through it all, but I enjoy the, the, tech, tech, the uh, delight and technicality of all of that. All the, uh, the, the am, Amor... Uh, abbreviations. If I read like three, five more uh, phone pages, we get to uh, perhaps another um, triggering event that might be good to end at. Okay. Do we want to do a, a little bit more? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, boo, boo, boo. Uh, <laughs> it's snowing on the goddamn map, not the territory, you dick. Pemulus <laughs> yells at Penn, whose lower lip is out and quivering. Pemulus's face is the face of a man who will someday need blood pressure medication. <laughs> a constitution the tenuate doesn't help one bit. Trolch is shitting up straight and speaking very intensely and quietly into his headset. 
Hal, who in his day never wore the beanie and usually portrayed some marginal nation somewhere out in the nuclear boondocks, finds himself more intrigued by Penn's map-slash-territory faux pas than upset by it or even amused. Pemulus turns back to the pavilion and seems to be looking at Hal in some kind of appeal. Jesus! Except is the territory the real world, quote-unquote, though? Axford calls across to Pemulus, who's pacing the, like the fences between him and some sort of prey. Axford knows quite well Pemulus can be fucked with when he's like this. When he's hot, he always cools down and becomes contrite. Struck tries to yell out a kertwang on Pemulus, but can't get the megaphone he makes of his hands to fit over his mouth. The real world's what the map here stands for. Lord lifts his head from the you shit you and cries over at Axe Handle, trying to please Pemulus. Kind of looks like real world type snow from here, MP, Axford calls out. His forehead's still maroon from the coughing fit. Trolch is trying to describe the distinction between the symbolic map of the gear-littered courts and the global strategic theater it stands for, using all and only sports broadcast cliches. Hal looks from Axe Handle to Pemulus to Lord. Struck finally falls out of his chair with a clunk, but his legs are still somehow entangled in the legs of the chair. It starts to snow harder, and dark stars of melt begin to multiply and then merge all over the courts. Otis Lord is trying to type and wipe his nose on his sleeve at the same time. Jay Gopnik and Kay McKenna are running around well outside their assigned quadrants with their tongues outstretched. <laughs> Real-world snow isn't a factor if it's falling on the fucking map. Ann Kintplan's crew-cutted head now protrudes from the kind of rugby scrum Amnats and Sovor's heads of state form around Lord's computational food cart. For Christ's sake, leave us alone, she shrieks at Pemulus. Trolch is going, oh my, into his headset. <laughs> oh, Lord is struggling with the cart's protective umbrella, his head's meanie's little white propeller rotating in a rising wind. A light dusting of snow is starting to appear in the player's hair. It's only real-world snow if it's already in the scenario. Pemulus keeps directing everything at Penn, who hasn't said a word since his original suggestion, and is busy sort of casually kicking the Karachi shirt over into the Arabian Sea, clearly hoping the original detonation will get forgotten about in all the meta-theoretical fuss. Pemulus rages across the East Court's western fence. The combination of several tenuate spantules plus eschaton adrenaline bring his blue-collar Irish right out. He's a muscular but fundamentally physically narrow guy, Head, hands, the sharp little wad of cartilage at the tip of Pemulus's nose. Everything about him seems to Hal to taper and come to a point like a bad El Greco. Hal leans to spit and watches him pace like a caged thing as Lord works feverishly over Enstat's peace terms decision matrix. Hal wonders, not for the first time, whether he might deep down be a secret snob about collar color issues and Pemulus than whether the fact that he's capable of wondering whether he's a snob attenuates the possibility that he's really a snob. <laughs> Though Hal hasn't had more than four or five total very small hits off the public Dubois, this is a prime example of what's sometimes called marijuana thinking. You can tell because Hal's leaned way over to spit, but has gotten lost in a paralytic thought helix and hasn't yet spit, even though he's right in bombing position over the NASA glass. It also occurs to him that he finds the real snow slash unreal snow snag in the eschaton extremely ex abstract, but somehow way more interesting than the eschaton itself so far. <laughs> Earlib Sears, strongman Evan Ingersoll, all of 1.3 meters tall, warmed by baby fat and high-calorie cerebral endeavor, has been squatting on his heels like a catcher just west of Damascus, spinning his Rossignol launcher idly in his hand watching the one-sided exchange between Pemulus and Ingersoll's roommate, J.J. Penn, who's now threatening to quit and go in for Coco if they can't for once play Eschaton without the big guys horning in again like always. There's a tiny whirring sound as Ingersoll's mental gears grind. 
From the duration of the little Sierra Leone summit and the studious blankness on everybody's face, it's pretty clear that Sovwar and Amnat are going to come to terms. And the terms are likely to involve Sovwar agreeing not to go sack pop against Amnat in return for Amnat letting Sovwar go sack pop against Ingersoll's Irlib Seer. Because if Sovwar goes sack pop against an Irlib Seer that can't have many warheads left in the old bucket by now, Ingersoll knows they know. Then Sovwar will get to rack up a lot of Indir without much Sufdir while inflicting such Sufdir on Irlib Seer that Irlib Seer will be effectively eliminated as a threat to Amnat's commanding lead in points, which is what has the most utility in the old game theoretic matrix right now. The exact utility transformations are too oogly for an Ingersoll who's still grappling with fractions, but he can see clearly that this would be the most remorselessly logical, best interest conducive scenario for both Lamont Chu and especially the sleepster, Peterson, who's hated Ingersoll for months now anyway, without any good reason or cause or anything, Ingersoll can somehow just tell. Hal, paralyzed and absorbed, watches Ingersoll bob on his haunches and shift his stick from hand to hand and cerebrate furiously and logically conclude then that Irlib Seer's highest possible strategic utility lies in Amnat and Sovwar failing to come to terms. Hal can almost visualize a dark light bulb going on above Ingersoll's head. Pemulus is telling Penn that there's a critical distinction between horning in and letting asswipes like Jeffrey Joseph Penn run roughshod over the delimiting boundaries that are Eschaton's very lifeblood. Chu and Peterson are nodding soberly at little things they're saying to each other, while Kitten Plan cracks her knuckles and Postlethwaite bounces a warhead idly on his strings. So now Evan Ingersoll rises from his squat, now only to bend again and take a warhead out of Earlib Sears' ordnance bucket, and Hal seems to be the only one who sees Ingersoll line up the vector very carefully with his slim thumb and take a lavish backswing and fire the ball directly at the little circle of super combatant leaders in West Africa. It's not a lob. It flies straight as if shot from a rifle and strikes Ann Kitten Plan right in the back of the head with a loud thock. She whirls to face east, a hand at the back of her bristly skull, scanning and then locking on Damascus, her face a stony Toltec death mask. Uh... There, there I, we I go. think that's good. Yeah. Now, now, what about now? It's going to pop uh, off. Now it's going to pop now off. Now it's now about it's about to go crazy. Uh, so, Matt, we'll kick it to you. Uh, when I told you that we were doing this, you said you wanted to come on in a, uh, for the Eschaton part. Now we're at Eschaton. Uh, what 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 do you like about what what do you think about this book and what do you like about Eschaton? Uh, I think Eschaton is a good. Uh, example of what for me is good about the book is that it ch- the, the challenge that Foss- Wallace seems to be doing is how do I describe reality in a way that strips it of any romance, any humanity, mm-hmm. abstract all uh, abstract human endeavor of its of its of its non rational components, but then somehow reintroduce humanity out of the back after you've gotten to that point of like total. Uh, total uh, abstract uh, mm. uh, analysis, and that's where all of you know the the t- the torrent of of details comes in, yes. and you just end up getting sort of hypnotized by them. Yes, uh, I think also to that end, that also maybe goes to a good way to describe what we were talking about when we were talking about the uh, the brutality, but the kind of uh, abstract alienated brutality of the uh, like addiction, uh, not the addiction, the 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 withdrawal segment yes uh you know where it's just like describing biological processes and it's very uh inhuman but but you get this the very human suffering out of it you know yeah 
Also, re- reading this stuff aloud, I'm like, there, you, there are just these different segments where, like, when they were in uh, the MIT radio station, it was like all this brain vocabulary, and this is all these geographical and like, and, uh, like tactical vocabulary. Yes. And it's quite, yeah, it is quite easy to get kind of like lost in the sauce of it, but then he'll slip in like a joke about someone picking their nose. Yes, exactly. And then it helps that they're all fucking kids. Yeah, they're little 12 year olds. Yeah. I, I like to think that Eschaton sort of acts as a uh, description of being in an MFA program or like just being, <laughs> being in, being, being in a, a, a academic creative trying to press generationally against the, the limits of, of the, of the recursive self-referential maze that you get in once you've removed any, uh, you know, fixed perspective on something, Mm. which is what eschaton is like. It's, it's, it's the world in this miniature, but every it, but, but that's just one level of a level of recursion that can never really be resolved unless Mm -hmm. you arbitrarily, Make a choice, which is what Pemulus is trying to pres- preserve is the arbitrary line. Yes. Like a generation of, of writers or, or thinkers to the people who are coming after them who take for granted their bullshit and want to push past it. Ooh, yeah, that's an interesting take. I like that. Uh, um, are, were either, have either of you boys like played, you know, ga- games like this? I mean, the, the joke of this game is that it's so incredibly fucking complicated that the the way they tally some simple things such as how many people die when you hit a tennis ball on a on a piece of underwear or whatever T- takes like an uh like a big tape computer a very com- a complex computer for the time two hundred fifty six I- uh megabytes of RAM or some <laughs> such. It's <laughs> so one thing nobody gets right. No, at least <laughs> nobody got right until now. Trying to forward cast into the twenty first century was the, the real revolution is just going to be in computing power. Mm, and you mm-hmm. don't need to draw in the in the year of the depends undergarment you wouldn't have to ride around on a cart like that because you'd have your phone um although i do think he does say that it is a vintage machine that they're that they're getting access to but yes i point taken of course i have played uh military role-playing games of various kinds though nothing quite like this i'm sure somebody has tried to formally create this game right oh 100 yeah i've seen maps uh this is <laughs> this is like the um okay well here's a good question and I, one that we've posed uh, in different ways. What is uh, actually nerdier, uh, playing real-world uh, Quidditch or playing real-world Eschaton? Mm. That's a good one. Ooh, that's very good. Because, like, Quidditch is just a game. Like, you're yeah. riding around. Yeah, it's not a bunch of nerd shit, but it comes from a fucking children's book. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, Eschaton is taking tennis, which is an actual sport, and turning it into a uh, bunch of uh, fractions and game theory and, and shit. So it's like, I guess it's STEM versus humanities. Right. Yes. <laughs> different ways to be a nerd. Yeah. I, I would still call out Quidditch because to me, if you want to play like a game in a field where you're like throwing something around and tackling each other, just play Ultimate Frisbee, you fucking dork. Yeah. Ultimate Frisbee is cool. Mm. Okay. Uh, we'll keep rolling. Uh, well, Matt takes a quick break, uh, because I do, I will re- simply refuse to edit this podcast. <laughs> uh, 
what what else is, uh, is going on in this in this segment? Obviously, there's a twist here, and now it goes into something uh, even even more wet and wild. Yeah, the the um, boundaries of the game are further traversed because I a little spoiler alert. I don't think it's that much of a spoiler. What happens if the territory instead of hitting a territory with a tennis ball, you hit a you person. hit a combatant? Should it does it does it follow the game logic that hitting a combatant would uh, you know, and and them, it would be the equivalent of hitting like uh the president. Would you if you murder the president See, in the United I took it to States? Mean that uh that Ingersoll was bombing the summit itself. Yeah, this exactly. But then he, who did he get? I mean, he. Spoiler alert: He will argue that he killed everybody. Yes, that's what I would argue. Yeah, that's uh, like the you know. Doesn't that happen with Black Panther? Doesn't Black Panther's dad get like smoked at the UN? That does indeed happen in the in. That doesn't happen in Black Panther. That happens in Civil War, but it affects the actions of uh, Black Panther. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, yes. Um, I mean, we could talk more about uh, um, the game itself, but while we got you here, Matt, I mean. I feel like we should uh, uh, just chat about the book in general because, you know, our, bi- our big project here, this all started basically to try to figure out why this book gets people so mad. <laughs> uh, and why do you think that uh, Infinite Jest gets people so angry? Why did it become the, the totem for a certain kind of, uh, like, you know, n- nerdy, hyper, faux intellectuality, hyper masculine, like, mansplainy, uh, um, affectation i don't i don't even know it's hard to describe why it makes people mad i i honestly think it comes down uh to the fact that the knowledge economy of the 21st century has brought all of the nerds together Mm -hmm. into one social group that is uh also responsible for the majority of the output of the social media and then real media that people consume and so you've got a situation where the only guys around are baseline dorks. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so the only way you can di- uh, like distinguish the the brutishly masculine from from the good ones is their adherence to certain things. But like a lot of the things that traditionally signal toxic masculinity, I've already been bred out of these guys. <laughs> the only thing that they has not been bred out of them, perhaps, is uh, intellectual pretension, which is a nerd's version of sports dominance hierarchies uh-huh. uh, and a preference for masculine art and that's i think at the end of the day it comes down to the fact that like uh infinite justice is, is the inside of a brain but it's a dude's brain mm. yes wow mm-hmm. i mean e- even uh even eschaton is ma- making fun of the the idea of a dude's brain that there could be nothing more fun for a dude than like getting together with your bros and and Kenton Plan, who pretty much counts as a guy. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, and playing a complex war slash somewhat athletic game. Yes, and then getting into a pedantic argument about what you know Nothing the reality. Could be greater. This is there. This is what is best in life. If you've lo- if you're no longer uh, 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 if you're no longer connected to 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 uh, any kind of mechanism of self-creation when you have been bound into market logic you have been consumed into a machinery where actions where where like a self-creating action is no longer a possibility if you're just entertaining yourself mm-hmm. uh then you have to find something that's entertaining and for guys if you cannot perform all the rituals of world domination that have uh, uh, uh like fired the, the the masculine imagination since the first fire was lit. You can do a simulation of it, uh, uh-huh. and and that means, uh, yeah, lording your strategic 
mathematical uh, tennis abilities over others and uh, imagining in, destroying everyone else on in, earth inventing rules and then getting mad at other people for not following the rules another another yeah. classic thing yeah boys boys love doing that but yes. the 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 real flex is to be on the sidelines uh smoking a joint and yeah. exactly them. that's and that's that's where uh that, that that's where the real uh power is and the authority is because uh it was a previous generation that that built machinery that uh, thought that it could control the world, you know, mm-hmm. the high modernist moment of of the Cold War, which this like these people are. This is all uh, uh, nostalgia retro stuff. They're like, there is no more Cold War in the book. Uh, they're they're reenacting like this previous generation's idea of power that has now been superseded. There's no power to be. There's no nuclear exchange. There's mm-hmm. no conflict between states. There is no conflict anymore. There's just there's just you know Onan and 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 the market and everything. And so all that's left is to is to perform rituals uh, of amusement around that and fa- and the fantasy of it that is now gone. It is interesting, and I'm just now realizing if I'm thinking of like the political world laid out by this book, that he does eventually go into great detail about how Onan is laid out, mm-hmm. uh, but basically no reference to anything outside of Onan in the in the current world of the book. Yeah. Like, like his, historical, but you know, pre-subsidized time stuff. No, not like even current the subsidized time. Oh yeah, like outside of Onan, outside right. of the world. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all which you know again <laughs> references the fact that it's called Onan, mm-hmm. uh, that everything must look in and, and reference itself. But yeah, there's no reference to the you know UK or France or what's going on in, mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, um, which I, you know, I find interesting in in what Matt's saying is that all that stuff. The, the high modernist, the actual conflict is in the past. It yeah, is it's resolved all going, yeah. away. It is a fantasy. Mm-hmm. There's nothing uh, to do now but just uh, uh, strap into the interlace. Yes. To, uh, <laughs> and then play, yeah, and play uh, tennis stratego with your boys. <laughs> um, the 12 year oldness of it really shined through for me. I've just, I, I do think that David Foster Wallace has a very n- nice touch of like, nailing the feeling of what it's like being 12 versus uh, 16 or 17 or 12 around 17 year olds. Yeah, exactly. That like, you know, when you're 12 amongst yourselves, you're, you're, you have a certain level of like authority, but then when the big boys come (laughs) to ruin everything, but, but they're also validating you by watching you. I don't know. I I love all that stuff. That's one of the things that really, that has, has come through to me is that, and I guess this is what the thing that makes this book feel or masterful is like how analytical and tedious and uh, descriptive everything is, but it does really have a, a um, an understanding and knowledge of the internal feelings of its char- characters, even if they're mostly described through like paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of like how one puts a leg into an ice bucket. Totally. You know? Or like, pu- like puking. Yeah. Puking in a, in a tennis ball basket yes. and then like feeling weird about it. <laughs> Honestly, the, the real takeaway, cause you, at this point we know a lot of people somewhat well, like we know, uh, how for instance, yeah, we know the tennis, boys but pretty the, well. the, the most interesting character development for me, at least in, as we stop at this point of the, of Eschaton is Evan Ingersoll, who has previously been described as someone who no one likes, even though they don't, they can't say why. And in this passage, he knows that people don't like him, 
and without knowing why. And he basically becomes the Joker. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. And I kind of love that I for him. the proof of villain. That he could, he could spend the rest of his life, you know, trying to please people and it wouldn't work because he doesn't have eyebrows and he makes people feel <laughs> unsettled or whatever when he looks at them. But he, I think he embraces in that moment. He's like, people, people hate me. They, they're going to hate me no matter what. So I might as well go, go crazy. That's the Stephen Miller. Steve yes. Yes. about him yeah yeah and how he 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 grew up uh in santa monica and he uh ran for student body president once and his speech was saying we shouldn't have to pick up after ourselves at lunch we pay people to do that <laughs> and the whole the whole audience booed and it's like you love that yeah like a wrestling heel it's the uh it's a it's the dark art of uh stoking and maintaining negative attention. Yeah, it's and like he's, it, he's dabbling in that now. You know what he's doing? He's he's making a a sound game theoretical decision. I was just yes. going to say that is that in yes, in the the context of the game, he's looking around and realizing that the more powerful, more charismatic, more well-liked people are going to strike a deal among themselves. Yep. Just as is happening in his actual life and he says, is it going to better me more to go along with their the, the dominant deal or strike out against them and see if I can win yeah. at their demise. Yeah. Which is honestly probably a mindset shared by, you know, the uh, wheelchair assassins. Yes. Same deal. At some point you make a, a heel turn, even if you know it's not necessarily going to be popular or go good, considering you might, you know, lose your legs and you do it anyway. Cause uh, you, cause you care. Cause you're a fanatic. Cause and you it, believe. And that drive becomes, uh, in, 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 in capitalism, it becomes universal. It becomes mm-hmm. this universal drive because eventually uh, all pleasures exhaust themselves. Mm-hmm. And the only pleasure left is uh, uh, the pleasure at the expense of others. Yes. yes. And so it's like I might not bring back uh, Mont- – I might not you know, get rid of uh, the, the concavity, but I'm going to kill somebody. I, I, might, I might not be popular, but I could at least get pleasure out of the discomfort of everybody else around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that guy's name? Eric, the time for some game theory. Guy. Oh, Eric Garland. Eric Garland. Is he still around? Yes. He has a locked <laughs> Twitter account you have to pay to see. <laughs> no. Yes. yes. Uh, Man, he should in, just have an OnlyFans. In a way. <laughs> That'd be same, same functionality. I would subscribe. You would? Absolutely. Uh, show, show, show a hole, Eric. <laughs> time for some hole theory. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say in, the own way, in his own way, with his time for the, some game theory for thread, he was also becoming a version of the Joker, of being of looking at this incredibly fertile th- sense where people uh, seen where everybody was trying to make sense of everything and just being like, "Look, if I just put out some pure fucking nonsense, I can at least throw a cog into this whole thing and, and get some uh, get some knowledge." It's true. He he goes, "I'm gonna drink a bunch of, I'm gonna get drunk and take Adderall, and I'm just going to have a logaric episode." <laughs> And people are going to be so desperate for any kind of expertise and explanation for what is going on that they will come to me as a god, which is what he did. It's like a time traveler showing up at a medieval village and taking out a Zippo lighter. <laughs> <laughs> but then he ran, it ran out of uh, fuel and he was fucked. Yeah. Oh, man. Mm. <laughs> I mean, if only he had got, like, kept going for forever. Uh, you know, one of those a day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I I don't know. It's uh, I don't know where else, where else to go uh, on this. It's it good to have you on the show. Matt. Oh, uh, do you yeah. guys know about the Decemberists video? Yes, of course. On this? Yes, that's both a Wes Anderson and an Infinite Jest uh, directed by Michael Schur, 
Who no. has the? He has the rights to. He has the rights the movie to the book. Yes. Way, yeah. way pro. He became before he became a Hollywood heavy hitter. That was probably right when the Office was. Starting. That was when he was writing for the Office before he became the uh, the Parks and the Rec key pusher of uh, of new sincerity on us. Which is very <laughs> fitting given that, that yeah. Wallace was a big uh, uh, like a John the Baptist figure there. Mm-hmm. Is it, see, I still don't understand what fucking new sincerity be, is. Just be just stop being ironic. Just yeah, just mean just mean what you say what and you say, say what you mean. Yeah. Is, is, quit, quit hiding read, behind. Being I read cool. Matt. It, I read a long like academic a- essay on new sincerity, but it was so dry and stupid. <laughs> like it, I knew less than when I started it. It was so bad. So is is Wallace new sincerity? Oh yes. yeah, he wrote a whole essay, uh, 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 e unum pluribus or something about television. Anti irony, giant yeah. anti irony, Jeremiah. Yeah. Uh, is Infinite, see, now I'm thinking of like how I guess Infinite is, Jess, Infinite is Jess not, Jess not really ironic. I mean, it, it is, though, because it's I don't know. It's it's funny and dark in a way that I think requires a certain level of irony. It's irony be, flavored, but yeah. it's not ironic. It, I guess it is. I mean, it's pretty hard on hard on sleeve about a lot of things. Ernest. Yeah, it's uh, got feelings. Yeah, it's got a heart. It's very funny to think Michael. Should, OK, maybe we can wrap up with this. We've been low over like these 50 or 60 where are we like 45 episodes into this mm-hmm. uh, spooling out how one might adapt infinite jest into something and i think that we we've landed on it needs to be a mini series right i was going to say it needs to be uh, an an anime an anime <laughs> yeah. uh is sorry is my um yeah, the, the cord cords, fucking yeah, up yeah, just hold it okay uh yeah an a, a, a like 36 episode anime okay yeah that's that's my vote but that sounds good. Yeah. Do you I think- mean, I think that would be more interesting than whatever inevitable uh, like HBO Max version you'd get, <laughs> like 12 episodes, whatever. Yeah. Um, I hope Michael Schur never actually gets around to doing it because I can't imagine that that would be good. I got to say, the the December's video, which I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this podcast to watch, it is kind of surreal seeing a visual representation of anything the, the that's in this book. And the yeah. little cart. It is. Yeah, I remember yeah. after it. I read it and I saw that it was it was it it's tickle it tickles you. Yeah. Um I'm just imagining the Michael Schur version of this that he gets made in like 15 or 20 years that has like a so like a um a gray fox just of the Michael Schur world who would be in the cast like a gray fox Andy Samberg as a uh, Jo and Condenza. Oh god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh something like that. Yeah. Um all right, we've gone like an hour here. Uh unless you have any uh, other just random thoughts on the on the book, who's your favorite character? Oh, uh, Michael Pemulus. Michael Pemulus. He's, he's is, one of my favorites. He's yeah. so good. Yeah. I, w- I wish like that, that he's a guy I'm like, I wish I could meet that guy. Yes. Like, cause exactly. yeah, I would like to hang out with I him. I want to hang with Pemulus. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So rare of characters in the book. That yeah. He stands out. <laughs> yeah. Most, most people I would say in this book, I do, I don't want to hang out with. I would hang out with Bing Dodd Gately also. Yes. But yeah, it's a, it's a short list. Yeah. It's not, not, not everyone is a. I know Pemulus isn't supposed to be likable, but he is likable. He is. He's, he's a, a rascal. Yeah, he's a rascal. And he just wants to vibe. And he's Irish. Exactly. Yeah. So he's he's one of my people. Mo- most of uh, most of the other characters uh, have too much anxiety. Oh yeah. Well, oh, he's, I think P- Pemulus is a is a paranoid guy. Well, paranoia and anxiety are different. His paranoia is sensible because he's constantly he's doing illegal dealing. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that requires a certain amount exactly, of Exactly. Yeah. Of that, paranoia. That, that, that's not the neurotic self-created thing. It's that, like, mm-hmm. no, you got to keep your head on a swivel. That's just common mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sure. All right. Well, Matt, maybe in another uh, 300 or 400 pages, we can have you back on and figure out exactly uh, what's going on then. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Can't wait. 
Uh, all right. Is that anything else, Molly? I got I got nothing. I'm right. I'm excited for you to to see the conclusion. Yeah, the conclusion of, conclusion of your life. Eschaton. Yeah. Well, maybe once we get there. Uh, I'll, I'll, I've regretted getting... Well, that's just when the timing worked out that we were in LA to get Matt yeah. on for this. But, yeah, that's um, perfect. We can talk about more Eschaton again in another 300 pages. Yeah, in like uh, six months. All right. Bye. Bye.